Grace and peace to you friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge. I want to thank you for listening. Thank you to my new listeners. Thank you to my older listeners. Uh, thank you to the listeners in France and Australia as well as the U.S. I appreciate you tuning in every week and learning about uh, in, uh, new words and entries in the encyclopedia. If you are new to this podcast, you may be wondering, what is the Encyclopedia Challenge? Well, that is a great question. That's a great thing to wonder. The Encyclopedia Challenge is where I read the encyclopedia to you in bite-sized chunks from two different encyclopedias. The main encyclopedia is the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, and uh, we have a secondary source, uh, the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, and sometimes we go back and forth. Uh, we're not reading from the entire 1956 Encyclopedia Americana, but we are trying to read from the entire 1909, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary. And if you remember from my introductions, to those of you who are my regular listeners, uh, you will uh, remember that the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 wanted us, their whole goal, their whole purpose of creating the volume of encyclopedias uh, was so that way people would read them on a regular basis and as a daily reading, as a book that they would look on their shelf and grab and read as a family. So I thought that was a pretty good goal too. So without further ado, uh, let's go to our quote of the month and it's by Carlisle. And remember, we are in December Today is December the 12th, and you are listening to episode 43 of season 1. And season 1 just simply means we are still in the letter A. <laughs> and I love the letter A. There are lots and lots of let, uh, words that begin with the letter A. And it's just such a wonderful letter. There's lots of wonderful words here. Um, so the quote of the month by Carlisle is wondrous is the strength of cheerfulness and its power of endurance. The cheerful man will do more in the same time, will do it better, will persevere in it longer than the sad or sullen. And I got to thinking about this quote the other day. I read uh, a terrible article. I mean, well, it was a, it was a good article about a terrible experiment. Uh, and it kind of has to do with cheerfulness. There were experiments done on lab rats to see how long they would swim before they drowned. And the lab rats uh, who had been coddled uh, or who were raised in the lab swam longer than wild rats until about midway through their swim, they would take the wild rats and kind of dry them off and love on them and let them swim again until they drowned. Horrible experiment. Horrible, horrible experiment. But it just shows uh, that the rats did persevere longer um, after being held uh, than before they were held. Um, so it's kind of a, I was just thinking about that and thinking about this quote. Uh, it doesn't really pertain necessarily to cheerfulness, but it did pertain to perseverance and hope. And so, yeah, <laughs> take that with what, what you will. Um, it just my little brain there just kind of, thinking about stuff. I wanted to give a special shout out to Patty. I met her on uh, one of my walks with my little fur baby and uh, we had an interesting conversation. Still disagree with you on a lot of stuff, Patty, but 
we had a really good uh, conversation, and I appreciate that. And as you know, my regular listeners, uh, we are down to 30 words instead of 50 because it was getting to be almost three hours long. And I didn't want to uh, do that to you. <laughs> I know uh, your time is very valuable. Um, so we are down to 30 words instead of 50. I just get so excited about these entries. I just want to keep going. So I have a hard time. I do have my list. So I know when to stop. <laughs> uh, we are beginning with the uh, entry Aldershot Camp. And we're going to end with Aleppo. So Aldershot Camp. And we are starting from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. Uh, and, uh, oh, last week we ended with Alderney. And if you want a list of the words, because some of the words are not spelled the way they are pronounced, and sometimes, or well, more often than not, I butcher the words. Um, and my apologies for that. Uh, I do look them up sometimes if I have a really hard time. I look them up and let the computer tell me how to pronounce it, but sometimes my tongue still doesn't make the, the loops and stuff it should. Um, so my apologies, but if you want a list of the words, go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select Encyclopedia Challenge. There, the website will be in the description. I don't know if the links are working. I've been having a hard time uh, getting the links to work uh, on my laptop, so I'm not really sure if it's my laptop or if it's the the system that I'm using, but uh, yeah, the at least the website is in the description, even if the link doesn't work, so you can copy and paste. All right, Aldershot Camp uh, is our first word, uh, so let's go over the first five words. Aldershot Camp, Aldhelm, Aldine Editions, Aldington, Richard, Aldini, Giovanni. All right, so those are our first five entries. So our first one is Aldershot Camp, a permanent camp for military re review, evolution, exercise, and training. And yes, it does say evolution. I thought it was going to be evaluation, but it's evolution, exercise, and training. Comprising 7,063 acres on Aldershot Heath, one, I'm sorry, 18 and a half miles from Windsor, England, purchased by the government for £130,000 and open for the reception of soldiers. In 1855, there are usually 10,000 to 15,000 troops of all arms at Aldershot Camp, different regiments occupying it in turn for an experience of camp life. The object was to accustom the officers and soldiers to act in brigades and divisions and to familiarize them with the operations of a campaign by accustoming them to camp life and exercising them in all the evolutions which they might be required to perform when brought into actual contact with the enemy. The Basingstoke Canal divides the camp into a north and a south camp, otherwise known respectively as Marlborough and Stanhope Lines. The accommodation provided for the army consisted at first of wooded huts of the simplest construction, but these have been superseded by brick buildings, and altogether the money expended on the camp has amounted to upward of 20 million pounds. $20 million. A town has sprung up in the neighborhood of the camp, immediately beyond the government ground on the edge of which the camp is established. The town of Aldershot is in Hampshire, to the south of the barracks. It contains several churches, hotels, numerous shops, and offers accommodation of various kinds, good and bad, 
to the soldiers, thus there are schools, newspapers, missions, literary institutes, music halls, public houses, etc. Population in 1901, including the military, was 30,974, and it also says sea barracks. And that was Aldershot Camp. Our second entry is Aldhelm, so Aldhelm, an Anglo-Saxon scholar and prelate, Bishop of Sherborne, born, uh, there's a question mark, around 640, but they're not really sure, died in 709. He was a great fosterer of learning and builder of churches and has left Latin writings on theological subjects. That's pretty cool. Our third entry is Aldine Editions. So Aldine Editions, name given to the works from the press of Aldo Manusia, Latin Aldus Minutius, and his family in Venice from 1490 to 1597. Recommended by their intrinsic value as well as by their handsome exterior, they have been highly prized for, by the learned and by book collectors. Many of them are the first editions, editions principes, of Greek and Roman classics. Oh, that's cool. Others contain corrected texts of modern classic writers such as Petrarch, Dante, Bacocchi, B ah, I know, I know this. And uh, my friend Charlie's going to be really mad at me because I'm about to butcher this name. Boccaccio, etc. Carefully collated with the manuscripts. All of them are distinguished for the remarkable correctness of typo typography. The Greek works, however, being in this respect somewhat inferior to the Latin and Italian. The editions published, published by Aldus, the father, form an epic in the annals of printing as they contributed in no ordinary measure to the perfecting of types. No one had ever before used such beautiful Greek types, of which he caused nine different kinds to be made, and of Latin as many as fourteen. It is to him, or rather to the engraver, Francesco of Bologna, that we owe the types called by the Italians corsivi, and known to us as italics, which he used for the first time in the eight-volume edition of Ancient and Modern Classics, commencing with Virgil in 1501. That is really cool. So if you ever wondered where italics came from, or the first person to ever use italics, this guy. This guy used it. Uh, Manuzio's impressions on parchment are exceedingly beautiful. He was the first printer who introduced the custom of taking some impressions on better paper that is finer or stronger than the rest of the edition. The first example of this is the Apostolae Gracia in 1499. It would be difficult to name another who has brought so much zeal, disinterestedness, taste, and knowledge to the furtherance of literature, especially classical literature. After his death in 1515, his business was superintended by his father-in-law, Andreas Asselinus. Paul, the son of Aldus, possessed the same enthusiasm for Latin classics that his father had for Greek. He died at Rome in 1597. The printing establishment founded by Aldo continued in active operation for 100 years and during this time printed 908 different works. The distinguishing mark is an anchor entwined by a dolphin, generally with the motto, Sudavit et Alsit. Under the direction of the grandson of the founder, it lost the superiority, 
which it had formerly maintained over all the printing presses in Italy. And that does happen. That that does tend to happen when when stuff is passed down or sold, and we see that all the time in Star Wars. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> you know, the uh, quality's not quite there anymore. Uh, the demand which arose for editions from this office, and especially for the earlier ones, induced the printers of Lyon in Florence about 1502 to begin the system of issuing counterfeits, all beans, and yes, that does happen a lot too. The Aldamania has considerably diminished in later times. Among the Aldine editions, works have now become very rare, maybe mentioned the Hora Volti Maria Virginis of 1497, the Virgil of 1501, and the Rhetoris Grassi, besides the editions from 1494 to 1497, which are now extremely rare. So if they were extremely rare in 1909, just think about how rare they are now in 2021. The most complete collections known are those of the former Grand Duke of Tuscany and of Renard, the bookseller of Paris. In 1834 appeared a third edition of the monograph published by Renard, Annals de Imprerie des Aldes or Historie des Troy Manusis et de Liars Editions, Par et Renard, Paris, 1834. Ebert has published a catalog of all the authentic A.E., so that's Aldine editions, in the supplement to Volume 1 of his Bibliographical Dictionary. Okay, and I thought it was getting ready to go on. Um, and I may have missed a person. Oh, no. Okay, so for our next two entries, we go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So let's switch over there right now. And before we switch over to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, just have to say I'm, I'm wondering, I'm as we were reading the, that entry, the Aldine editions, I'm wondering if my friend Courtney, hey Courtney, <laughs> thank you for listening. Um, Courtney, I wonder if you know about those. Oh, because you do beautiful prints too. So if you do, let's get together. <laughs> All right, so our fourth entry is Aldington, Richard or Richard Aldington and this is from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. He was an English poet and novelist born Portsmouth, Hampshire, England in 1892. After attending Dover College and the University of London, he became in 1913 literary editor of The Egoist, a magazine sponsored by poets of the Imagist movement including Ezra Pound and the American Hilda Doolittle or H.D whom Aldington married. Oh, cool. His experience in World War I shattered his nerves, and after a few months on the staff of the London Times Literary Supplement, he was forced to move to the country. There he produced several volumes of his own verse while supporting himself by translating from the French, Italian, and Latin. His first works of fiction, the novels Death of a Hero in 1929, The Colonel's Daughter, 1931, and All Men Are Enemies, 1933, and several collections of short stories were bitterly anti-war. He has also written criticism, drama, and biography. The Duke, A Life of Wellington, was published in 1943. Aldington, who lived at different times in Italy, Switzerland, and France, has made his home in the United States since 1939. So, at the time of this 1956 encyclopedia, he was still alive. The Autobiographical Life 
The autobiographical Life for Life's Sake appeared in 1941. Okay, so he's, I'm, I'm guessing he's not around anymore. Um, but, uh, but that's pretty cool that he was still alive when this was written. Okay, our fifth entry is Aldini Giovanni, or Giovanni Aldini. And he was an Italian physicist born Bologna, Italy, April 10th, 1762, died in Milan, Italy, January 17th, 1834. A nephew of the famous Scalvani and an accomplished linguist, he became widely known for his writings in Italian, English, and French on the practical applications of gal galvanism and on illumination, tides, and fire prevention. He became professor of physics at Bologna in 1798, and endowed a school of natural science for working men in that city. Well, that's really good. All right, and with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five words are Aldo Brandini, Aldo Brandini marriage, Aldred or Ildred or Allred, Aldrich, common Nelson Wilmarth, Aldrich, comma, Thomas Bailey. And the first three, so six, seven, and eight, will be from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So let's go ahead and go to number six, which is Aldo Brandini, and that is a noble Florentine family, now extinct, which produced one pope, Clement VIII, and several cardinals, archbishops, bishops, and men of learning. So that's pretty cool. I hate that they're extinct now. Um, I'm sure that uh, DNA and stuff will, will find that. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're not. But maybe they are. Okay. And then our seventh entry is Aldo Brandini Marriage. An ancient fresco dating, probably from the time of Augustus. Discovered in Rome in 1606, it was acquired by Cardinal... Aldobrandini, nephew of Pope Clement VIII. It is now in the Vatican Library, considered one of the most precious relics of ancient art. The painting depicts a marriage scene in which ten persons are portrayed. So that'd be really neat to look up. And don't forget, if, uh, if you hear an entry that you want to know more about and you want me to do a bonus for, just uh, let me know. Email me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com and that email address is in the description. Uh, you can also uh, contact me at my website on theoaktreejourneys.com um, I'm not sure if I'm getting those messages though. Uh, GoDaddy is doing something kind of weird right now. They're updating things so I may not be getting your messages if you go through that. So emailing me is probably the best way to get a hold of me. And for our eighth entry we have Aldred, or Ildred, or Allred, and you will see all three spellings of this one entry on theoaktreejourneys.com Encyclopedia Challenge. And he was an English prelate, born, they've got a question mark, around 1,000, they say, died York, Yorkshire, England, September 11th, 1069. Bishop of Yorkchester from 1044, and Archbishop of York from 1060. Aldred improved the discipline of the church and built several ecclesiastical edifices. He submitted to William the Conqueror and crowned him king on Christmas Day 
in 1066. So he crowned William the Conqueror king on Christmas Day. So this is quite appropriate for us to read right now because Christmas is coming. Whether you like it or not, it's coming. <laughs> it's just around the corner. We have 13 days until Christmas counting today. So yeah, 13 days. So yay, I do enjoy Christmas. So we'll talk more about Christmas and uh, the Christmas bonus uh, after our next break, but let's go on to entry number nine. So entry number nine is Aldrich, Comet, Nelson, Wilmarth. And for that one, we switch back over to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. Make sure I've got the right one. Okay. Well, I have... Oh, oh, I'm looking at... Okay, I was looking at the wrong entry for a second. So, Aldrich, comma, Nelson Wilmarth, or Nelson Wilmarth Aldrich. He was a merchant, born Foster, Rhode Island in 1841, November 6th. He passed an early part of his life at Killingly, Windham County, Connecticut, and was educated there and at the Providence Conference Seminary, East Greenwick, Rhode Island. Removing to Providence, he entered on a mercantile career, which has continued with great prosperity at the present time. He was a member of the Common Council of the City of Providence in 1869 to 1875, and its president, 1872 to 1873. In 1875 to 1876, he was a member of the General Assembly of Rhode Island, and in the latter year, Speaker of the House of Representatives. He was a member of the 46th Congress, oh, that's neat, and was re-elected to the 47th as a Republican by a large majority. In 1881, he was elected by the legislator U.S. Senator to fill the unexpired time of the late General Burnside. In 1886, 1892, and 1898, he was re-elected for full terms. He has been an active member of important Senate committees, was a strong supporter of the McKinley Tariff Act, and was one of the most influential senators in the session of 1902 to 1903. So it's interesting to read about, or at least I think it's interesting to read about, the early senators, the early politicians, uh, and what they did. Uh, I, I find it interesting. And I hope you do, too, since you're listening. I hope you find this interesting as well. All right, uh, number 10. Aldrich, comma, Thomas Bailey, or Thomas Bailey Aldrich. He was a poet and prose writer born Portsmouth, New Hampshire, 1836, November 11th. He died Boston, Massachusetts in 1907, March 19th. With the intention of entering college, he began preparatory study, but on the death of his father became a clerk in the counting room, of his uncle in New York, where he remained three years. In 1855, he published his first volume entitled The Bells, and 1856 wrote his poem Baby Bell, which at once gave him fame, being copied by the press all over the country. This led him into a literary career as a profession, and he contributed thereafter to Putnam's Magazine, The Knickerbocker, and the weekly newspapers, writing poems and prose tales as the humor struck him. His Daisy's Necklace and What Came of It, a prose poem, gained general popularity. In 1856, he became a member of the staff of the Home Journal, at that time under the editorship of N.P. Willis and George P. Morris, and here he remained three years, writing considerably and always with gratifying result. 
At the beginning of the publication of Every Saturday, he became its chief editor and continued such until 1874 when it was stopped. In 1881, he was made editor of the Atlantic Monthly, to which he had for several years sent all his contributions, and he held his chair till 1890 in June when he resigned and was succeeded by Horace E. Scudder. His published works include The Ballad of Baby Bell and Other Poems, 1856, The Course of True Love Never Did Run Smooth, 1858, Pompinia and Other Poems, 1861, Out of His Head, A Romance in Prose, 1862, A Collection of Poems, 1863, A Volume of Poems Published in Boston, 1865, and Marjorie Daw and Other People, 1873, Prudence Palfrey and Cloth of Gold and Other Poems, 1874, Flower and Thorn, 1876, The Queen of Sheba, 1877, The Stillwater Tragedy, 1880, <clears throat> Friar Jerome's Beautiful Book, 1881, Mercedes and Later Lyrics, 1884, and Wenham Towers, 1889, The Sister's Tragedy, 1891, The Story of a Bad Boy, a Sea Turn and Other Matters, 1902. Ponca Pog Papers, 1903. Judith of Bethulia, A Tragedy in Four Acts, 1905, etc. So apparently there were so many, they can't even list them all in this encyclopedia. He sounds like a really neat person as well. All right, and with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. And as promised, I did say I would talk about the bonus. So don't forget, uh, there is going to be a Christmas bonus that will drop Christmas Eve. And my goal is to drop it at 7 a.m., uh, like I usually do. Uh, or m mostly. <laughs> I shouldn't say usually, but like I mostly do. Uh, so Christmas Eve, 7 a.m., Christmas bonus. And... I will be reading a book. I've narrowed it down to two. <laughs> and uh, I'm pretty sure I know which out of the two I'm going to read, but I'm waiting on the second one to come so I can see how many pages it's going to be. But uh, one of them is my favorite, and the other one I haven't read yet. I, I flipped through in the store, and I was like, oh, this looks nice. I, this would be a good one to have on my shelf. And I'm not going to reveal which two they are. Um... But one is longer than the other. Uh, but I also debated on reading The Christmas Pig by J.K. Rowling. And I was like, no, I can't read that one. Uh, that's too new. And it's also a little too long. But if you have not read The Christmas Pig by J.K. Rowling, and I'm not getting any endorsements at all by saying this. I'm just I'm an avid reader, avid writer. Uh, love love uh, reading and writing. Um, I just read... The Christmas Pig last week and I have to say I read it in less than a day I was babysitting the my niece and nephew and they were doing their thing and I was reading while they were playing with my devices so it is excellent 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 so I would like to encourage you if you are looking for a cute Christmas story to read to your children or to just read for yourself I highly recommend The Christmas Pig by J.K. Rowling very very good um and that's all i'm gonna say about it I, I i get excited sometimes and i i have a tendency to want to reveal a little too much and so i better stop talking about it otherwise i'll reveal what it's about and stuff but definitely get it 
whether you get it on Audible, Kindle, physical copy. I got a physical copy of it, um, but I definitely read it. That, that's something you want to read this year um, for Christmas. Okay, so without further ado, uh, just don't forget Christmas bonus will drop Christmas Eve, and I am very excited about that. Okay, the next five words are Aldrich, comma, Winthrop, William. Aldridge, comma, Ira Frederick. Aldrivandi, comma, Ulysses. Aldstone, or Alston, or Alston Moore. And then L. Okay, and the first two, so 11 and 12, will be from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So let's get to that. Aldrich, comma, Winthrop, William, or Winthrop, William, Aldrich, which is entry number 11. He was an American banker born Providence, Rhode Island, November 2nd, 1885. The 10th child of Senator Nelson W. Aldrich. He graduated from Harvard University in 1907 and from Harvard Law School in 1911. During World War I, he served in the Navy as a lieutenant. He practiced law until 1922 when at the urging of his brother-in-law, John D. Rockefeller Jr., so... There you go. He entered the banking field as chief counsel of the Equitable Trust Company. In 1930, he became president of the Chase National Bank. Wow. And in 1933, chairman. <clears throat> president Dwight D. Eisenhower appointed him ambassador to Great Britain in 1953. Well, he climbed that ladder pretty quick, didn't he? <laughs> All right, our 12th entry is Aldrich, Ira. Frederick, or Ira Frederick Aldridge, and he was an American black actor, born New York, New York, 1805, died Lodz, Poland, August 7, 1867. Accounts of his early life vary widely. His father is thought to have been a pastor of a colored church in New York who sent his son to Glasgow University to train for the ministry. According to another account, Aldridge became Edmund Keane's attendant during the, an American tour of the famous English actor and returned to England with him where he prepared for the stage. His London debut in 1826 as Othello was, great, was a great success and was followed by other appearances in London and in the English and Irish provinces. Charles Keane played Iago to Aldridge's Othello in Belfast. An appearance in Baltimore about 1830 was a failure. In England, however, Aldridge was regarded as an excellent interpreter of Shakespeare. He played Macbeth, Lear, and other roles, but was most like in colored parts such as Othello and Aaron and Titus Androcles and a number of popular dramas of the day. He married an English woman. In 1853, Aldridge appeared frequently on the continent where he was an immense popular success, made a considerable fortune, and received numerous honors and decorations, including some from the Emperor of Austria, the Kings of Sweden and Prussia, and the city of Bern. During the last 10 years of his life, he played mainly on the continent. He was on his way to an engagement in St. Petersburg when he died. So it doesn't say how he died, this is when he died. Oh, he sounds like a really good actor. would have liked to have seen him I'll play some of those. All right, and for 13, 14, and 15, we're going to go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So number 13. Make sure I've got the right. Okay, here we go. Aldrivandi, comma, Ulysses, or Ulysses Aldrivandi. 
probably about 1522 to 1605, so they're not even sure when he lived. <laughs> He uh, was born in Bologna, one of the most distinguished naturalists of the 16th century. He was descended of a noble family and received an excellent education, partly in his native city and partly at Padua. Padua. Some of his religious opinions having been called in question, he traveled to Rome in 1550 to vindicate himself, and while there studied Roman antiquities and wrote a treatise on ancient statuary. At Rome, he formed an acquaintance of Rondelet. On his return, he studied botany, and having taken his degree in medicine at the University of Bologna, in 1553, he was in the following year appointed to the chairs of philosophy and logic and to the lectureship on botany. He practiced medicine for some time in Bologna and appears after a short time to have exchanged some of the chairs which he held in the university for that of natural history. He established the Botanical Garden at Bologna in 1567, he was employed many years in forming a museum of natural history, which he bequeathed to the Senate of Bologna, and it became the foundation of the splendid public museum of that city, where many of Aldrovandi's specimens remain to this day. I wonder if they're still there in 2021. He left at his death a pro prodigious mass of valuable manuscripts still in the public library of Bologna in which there is probably much correspondence of eminent men showing the first steps of the science of natural history after the long dormancy of the Middle Ages. All of his studies and collections were made subservient to his work on natural history, the first volume of which, on birds, appeared in 1599. Six volumes appeared during his life. Other seven were published under the direction of his colleagues and pupils after his death. The story that by his scientific pursuits... He reduced himself to great poverty and that he died in a public hospital at Bologna, though Bell has adopted it in his dictionary, has no sufficient evidence. So if you've heard about him and you heard that he died in poverty, there's no evidence of that as of 1909. It may well be doubted. Complete editions of his works are rare, the volume on minerals especially so. He has been censored for ex excessive copiousness in things of little importance due evidently to his conscientious anxiety to set forth all that is known on every subject of which he treats. Um, so yeah, censorship seems to be prevalent to, for people, you know, if, if someone doesn't want you to know something. Alright, even back then, and even today. Alright, so he sounds like a really neat person as well. I just, I just love reading about people because they are just super fascinating. And our 14th entry is Aldstone, or Alston, and sometimes called Alston Moore. And for all those spellings, go to the theoaktreejourneys.com and select Encyclopedia Challenge. Okay. And it was a market town of the county of Cumberland, England, 30 miles east-southeast from Carlisle. The parish of Aldstone contains extensive and very productive lead mines, formerly belonging to the Earls of Derwentwater and now to the Lord's Commissioner of the Admiralty. The town has manufactures of worsted, yarns, and flannel. It is in a mountainous district on the declivity of a steep hill near the confluence of the Neen and South Tyne. The produce of the lead mines has fallen off considerably during recent years, Population about 2,500 of parish in 1871. 
5,680, and then in 1881, 4,621. So the population actually dropped, and there's nothing in here about, okay, so it, oh, it kept dropping. So the population in the 1900s was 2,500. In 1871, it was 5,680, and then in 1881, it was 4,622, so there was a decline. A steady decline, it looks like. And number 15 is L, and we will see two entries for L. But uh, the first entry for L is entry number 15, and it's a noun. And it is ground ivy, the Nepeta glachoma, or glachoma heterecho, order Labuta, used for preserving L for the use of hops. Aligar, noun, sour L. Oh, okay, I missed some of this. So, L noun, beer, a drink made from malt. L berry, noun, a beverage made by boiling L with spice, sugar, and sops of bread. L cost, an herb. L hoof, ground ivy. Okay, so L hoof is ground ivy. All right, sorry about that. It was just really weird in this entry. Okay, so there we go. And with that, let's go to break. Welcome back. Uh, before we get into the next five words, I just want to uh, mention Christmas traditions. I know I talked about uh, Christmas traditions last week and the month before we talked about Thanksgiving and the month before that we talked about Halloween. <laughs> um, but one of my Christmas traditions is to make fudge for my family. And I decided uh, whenever this podcast drops it'll be Sunday and we'll have a meal at church and I'm so excited I love meals at church that's where we get to talk to people and get to know more about them uh, where not everyone's rushing off uh, to go home to go grab something to eat they're rushing to the uh, parsonage to go eat and it's really fun it's uh, good times and really get to bond but I decided I'm going to make fudge so I haven't made it yet um, but I am planning on making it I've got all the stuff for it, so I can't wait for my church family to taste my fudge. Uh, my grandmother uh, taught me how to do it, and it is, the, uh, confession, it's the recipe on the back of the Kraft marshmallow cream jar. However, with that being said, they have taken the recipe off and moved it to the website, so you have to go online for it. And I have to say, whenever I look through it, um, it seems to be off a little bit. So I'm going to look through it again because it may have been my imagination, um, but it just seems to be off. But I've tweaked it, uh, tweaked it from what my grandmother did. My grandmother followed the recipe exactly, and I did the first time, and it was a lot harder. So I've tweaked the recipe quite a bit, and I've decided since they've taken off the fantasy fudge recipe from the marshmallow cream jars, which was the only reason I ever bought the marshmallow cream to begin with, um, I'm going to strictly use the vegan marshmallows. And I have used the vegan marshmallows before because I have some vegan friends, and so I try to make them special vegan fudge. And how do you make special vegan fudge? That's a great question. Uh, you do it, it's the same exact same way except different ingredients, substitutions. So you don't use butter, you use coconut or some type. I think I last year I used some sort of vegan butter, which... 
I, I will confess, smelled horrible. It smelled terrible. It was some sort of cashews. I mean, it just, it smelled bad. Um, <laughs> uh, but I do need to find some more of that. But I am very excited about making it uh, for my church family. And that's all the adults are going to get. They already know that. The adults in my family already know that that's all they're going to get this year uh, for Christmas. Um, but I'm also going, well, that's not all they're going to get. I'm going to try my hand at gingerbread cookies again. I made them um, years ago, years and years ago. I think uh, well over six, maybe even over ten years ago. Um, and I, I think they turned out really well, if memory serves. Everyone seemed to like them. Um, but I'm going to try them out again. And I should have some guests, uh, my nephew and my cousin, staying with me. So they may help me out if they want to. But anyway, let me know what your Christmas traditions are. Do you bake cookies? Do you make food for people? Uh, do you sing songs every day? Do you go out caroling? And what do you do? What, what do you do? What is your Christmas tradition that you enjoy doing? I would love to know. Uh, email me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com um, or go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact and uh, try to get a hold of me there. My email is the best way, though. So my email address is the best way, mandyoaks at protonmail.com. So, yeah, I would love to hear what your what your traditions are for Christmas uh, because I, I think it's a lot of fun to cook. Uh, I don't make fudge any other time of the year. I don't make uh, homemade cookies any other time of the year other than Christmas. So what, what do you do? I would love to know. Love to hear from you. Okay, our next five entries are L, Aleandro, comma, Girolamo, Aliardi, comma, Aliardo, Electromancy, and A. Lee. Okay, and for entry number 16 is our second entry for L. And it's a little longer, but it's in a better format. Um, I can actually make sense. So L, apparently the current name in England for malt liquor in general before the introduction of hops. This took place, according to Johnston, chemistry of common life as late as the reign of Henry VIII, about 1524. As the use of hops was derived from Germany, the German name for malt liquor, beer, beer was used at first to distinguish the hopped liquor from L, the unhopped. So L used to be unhopped and beer was hopped. The word L had in all likelihood been introduced by the Danes and other Scandinavian settlers for ol or allied probably to oil, is still the name for malt liquor in the Scandinavian tongues, and must have driven out the beor of the Anglo-Saxons, which that people had in common with other Saxons. Oh, I'm sorry, with other Teutonic nations. As now used, L signifies a kind of beer, see beer fermentation, distinguished chiefly by its strength and the quantity of sugar remaining undecomposed. Strong L is made from the best pale malt, and the fermentation is allowed to proceed slowly, and the ferment to be exhausted and separated. This, together with the large quantity of sugar still left undecomposed, enables the liquor to keep long without requiring a large amount of hops. The Scotch ales are distinguished for the smallness of the quantity of hops they contain and for their vinous flavor. They are fermented at an unusually low temperature. The ales of Edinburgh and Preston pans have a high reputation. The Burton L is the strongest made, containing as much as 8% of alcohol, while the best-known stout has about 6%, and common beer only 1%. It 
India Pale Ale has a large quantity of hops. All right, so that's all you want to know about ale, right? <laughs> and entry number 17 is actually from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Actually, entries 17 and 18 are from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Make sure I'm getting the right one. Okay. No, I'm not. Um... Hmm. Okay, this is going to take just a minute to find the entries. I've got them marked, but they are all... Oh, no, I did not have this one marked. Okay, there he is. Alejandro, Girolamo, or Girolamo Alejandro. Latin name, Hieronymus Aleander. He was an Italian scholar and cardinal born Malto di Lavenzo, Venezia. February 13th in 1480, he died Rome, Italy, February 1st of 1542. He taught at the University of Paris and was for a time its director. He became librarian of the Vatican on the appointment of Pope Leo X, who also gave him his first appointment as nuncio to Germany. In 1520, he attended the coronation of Charles V as emperor, and in 1521, he led in condemning Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. Subsequently, he was papal representative in the Netherlands and France and again in Germany. He accompanied Francis I of France into the Battle of Pavia in 1525 and was taken prisoner but was ransomed. In his various offices, he was in the forefront of the struggle against the growth of Protestantism. He was elevated to the Cardinalate in 1538 by Pope Paul III. His contributions to scholarship include lexicon, Greco Latinum, Paris 1512, his letters and reports deposited in the Library of the Vatican, dealing as they do with his activities against Luther and the spread of Protestantism, contain invaluable source materials on the Reformation. And I have to say, anyone against Martin Luther, uh, not a good person. Like to pop him in the nose. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding about popping him in the nose, but. But you know what I mean. All right. So, number 18, Aliardi, comma, Aliardo, or Aliardo, Aliardi. He was an Italian poet and patriot, born Verona, Italy, November 4th, 1812. He died there July 17th in 1878. He became an Austrian subject soon after his birth, and he early adopted Republican principles. In 1848, he took part in the insurrection against the Austrians in Lombardy. Imprisoned in 1852 and again in 1859, he returned to Verona after the Austrians had been expelled. He was a professor of aesthetics and the history of art in Florence after 1864. In 1873, he entered Parliament as a deputy and was named a senator. His verse helped to promote the regeneration and unification of Italy. Moderns criticize it for the excess of description. Perhaps the most successful of his poems is Le Cita Italiana's Marine e Commerciante in 1856, an ode to the Italian commercial and maritime cities. Among his other works are the following Le Liarte e Maria, 1847, Prime Story, 1846, Raffaella e la Fornirina, Forni 1855, Il Monte Cercello, 1856, 
Un hora della mia giovanza, 1858, e sette soldati, 1861, and il canto public- politico, 1862. His works have been collected in one volume, Conti, 6th edition, edition, Florence, 1882. G. Treza edited his collected correspondence, Epistolare. Blah, 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 sorry about that. Epistolario in Verona, 1879. Okay, so sorry for bumbling through those. And uh, one of the things I am planning on trying to do is uh, learn new languages, and maybe that will help with the pronunciations. Okay, so number 19 and 20, uh, we go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And this uh, entry, number 19, is a huge word. Um, It's electromancy. And all it says is seacock. That's it. That's it. So we won't know what that is until we get to the seas. Um, But if you want to learn more about it, before we get to the seas, uh, you can go to theoaktreejourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge, go to S1 slash E43, and it's entry number 19 to see how it's spelled. And our 20th entry before break is Ali. I think I said Ali uh, before, but it's Ali. And it is a term used to denote the position of a ship's helm when put in a direction opposite to that from which the wind blows, thus bringing the ship's head to windward. It is expressed by the French sous-levent, or under the wind. Okay, and with that, let's go to break, and I'm going to go get more coffee. And welcome back. Our 21st entry will be from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, and that is Alkine or Eulachian, comma, Alexander. And then our 22nd entry is Elman, common, Matteo. Uh, that's when we switch back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. We have Elmani, then Elmbert, comma, Jean Laronde D, then Elmbeck. And without further ado, let's go ahead and go to entry number 21 from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, which is Alec Hine or Yule Kian, comma Alexander or Alexander Alec Hine. And to see how those are spelled, you can go to theoaktreejourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge, go to S1 slash E43, and it's entry number 21. And let's see who he was. He was a Russo-French chess player. And that's why I picked him. I saw the word chess player, or the words chess player, and I was like, ooh, I want to know who he is, because I'm teaching the kids how to play chess. So he was a Russo-French chess player, born Moscow, Russia, November 1st, 1892, died Estrel, Portugal, March 24th, 1946. He was classed as a master of chess at the age of 16, just 16, when he won the Russian Amateur Tournament. During World War I, he served with the Russian Red Cross. After the October 1917 revolution, he was condemned to death by the Bolsheviks, but secured his freedom. He settled in Paris, and in 1927, 
he became a French citizen. In the same year at Buenos Aires, he won the World Chess Championship from Jose Raul Capablanca y Grupi. Ah, I was doing so well. <laughs> Grupera. Thereafter, until his death, he retained the chess title except for the interval from 1935 to 1937 when the title was held by Max U. In 1924, 1925, and again in 1933, he broke the world blindfold chess record. So any chess lovers out here, this is a name you need to know. He was noted for new and surprising treatments of situations apparently drained of possibilities. His several books on chess include My Best Games of Chess, 1924 to 1937, that was written in, or published in 1939. I need to look into that. I'm actually going to mark this somehow. Uh, so I will remember to look more into him and to look into his books. Because I also have a friend, hey Charlie, uh, who is learning how to play chess. And uh, confession, I was sent to chess classes when I was a child. Um, it, they were free. <laughs> My parents loved the free stuff, so... You know, if you're a parent and anything free, you want to send your kid to if you've got the time because it's free and you get a little break to go do the chores and stuff, whatever you got to do. So I understand. I understand why my parents sent me there. But I also had an interest in it because my uncle taught me when I was real, real little. I mean, I was, I don't remember how old I was, but I still remember him teaching me. So they didn't just dropped me off because it was free and they needed time to themselves, although I'm sure that was part of it. It was also because I did have an interest. Now, I didn't get to keep up that interest because, uh, long story short, no one wanted to play chess with me. Uh, it's not because I'm a huge competitor with chess. I'm a competitor with writing, but not necessarily with chess, but because no one wanted to play, they always played checkers instead. So if I wanted to play uh a game like chess, I'd have to play checkers with them. So I kind of lost, lost that. And I'm finally regaining the chess playing again because I've got people in around me who are interested in playing. So I'm really excited about that. Um, all right. So let's go to entry number 22 and we go back to the new Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So number 22 is Elman, comma, Matteo or Matteo Elman. Famous Spanish novelist born Seville about the middle of the 16th century. He died in Mexico during the reign of Philip III. In 1604, he published a poetical biography of St. Antonius of Padua. And in 1608, while in the New World, an Ortografia Castellano, Castellana, written during his voyage, but his great work is Guzman de... Alfarachi, a novel with a rogue for the hero, like some of the more recent English fictions. It was first published at Madrid in 1599, became immensely popular, and in half a dozen years had gone through 26 editions, wow, consisting of not less than 50,000 copies in Spain and other countries. As regards to the delineation of manners and the purity of style, this masterly creation of his ranks next to that most of celebrated of all Spanish novels of the same character, the Lazarello de Tormes of Mendoza. It shows keen observation and a ripe and cultivated mind. Mendoza's hero has the advantage in originality, freshness, and vivacity, 
but Guzman exhibits a richer variety of gifts in the various characters he is compelled by circumstances to assume, such as a stable boy, beggar, thief, coxcomb, mercenary, valet, pander, merchant, etc. The manners of the author's own age are hit off with the great skill and effect, and the narrative is in interspersed with shrewd and solid reflections and moralizings. He is considered to rank with Mendoza, Cervantes, etc. as one of the masters of the Castilian style. So if you are into learning about authors, here is one you need to know. Matteo Elman. And number 23, Alimani. Alimani, uh, that is all men, name of the military confederacy of several German tribes which appeared on the lower and middle main about the beginning of the 3rd century. Caracalla fought with them first on the main in 211, but without conquering them. Alexander Severus was equally unsuccessful, but Maximinus at length succeeded against them and drove them beyond the Rhine. After his death, they again invaded Gaul, but were defeated by Posthemius, who pursued them into Germany and fortified with rampart, rampart, oh my goodness, this is a word I know too, ramparts and ditches, the boundary of the Roman territory called the Agri Decamates, the mounds near Foring on the Danube, the rampart exceeding through the principality of Hohenlobe to Jokstossen, and the ditch with palisades on the north side of the main are remains of these works. The Alemanni, however, did not desist from their incursions, although they were repeatedly driven back. After 282, being pressed upon from the northeast by the Burgundians, they took up permanent settlements within the Roman boundary from Mainz to Lake Constance. At last, Julian came 357 to the relief of Gaul, which had been suffering from the incursions of the Alemanni and soon compelled eight of their chiefs to sue for peace. Their united force in their principal battle with Julian amounted to 35,000 men. After the 5th century, the confederated nation is spoken of as Alemanni and Suavi or Suivi. In the course of the 4th century, they had crossed the Rhine and extended as far west as the Vosigs and south to the Helvetian Alps. At length, Clovis, king of the Franks, broke their power in 496 and made them subject to the Frankish dominion. The south part of their territory was formed into a duchy called Alamania. The name of Swabia came afterwards to be applied to the part of the duchy lying east of the Rhine. From the Almani, the French have given the name Alamans and Alamagni to Germans and Germany in general, though the inhabitants of the north of Switzerland with those of Alsace are, and part of Swabia are the proper descendants of the Alamani. Okay. <laughs> So that's an interesting history there of the German tribes. And if memory serves me correctly, from one of the German tribes, we got pants. Like women wore pants, men wore pants, and uh, pants were acceptable. So if my memory serves and if that's correct, I have to thank those Germanic tribes. So thank you. Because I love pants. But right now, I love shorts even more. And this is December. Uh, as I'm recording this, it is almost 70 degrees outside. Uh, now when this posts, it's going to drop down to 40. But today, 
as I'm recording this, it's almost 70, so I am in shorts. I'm going to open my windows later. I'm going to run around in shorts. I am so, so excited. I love to wear shorts, especially in the middle of December. If we could just stay this temperature, if I could just go somewhere with this temperature, that'd be really cool. All right, number 24, Alan Burt, comma, Jean LaRonde, so Jean LaRonde de Alan Burt. 1717 to 1783, born Paris, one of the most distinguished mathematicians and writers of the 18th century. He was the illegitimate son of Madame de Tinson, a woman of considerable notoriety in the time of the Regency, and of a M. Dustaches. He was exposed by his mother on the steps of the church of St. Jean Laurent and the policeman who found him committed the seemingly dying infant to the care of the wife of a poor glazier, thinking it too weak to be taken to the depot. The father, without publicly avowing the child, secured to him an allowance of 1,200 francs yearly. At the age of 12, he entered the College of Mazarin, where he soon gave indication of the passion of the math for the mathematical studies, which distinguished him through life. And thank goodness for that police officer who knew where to take him. Um, that, that's horrible to expose an infant uh, like that. But, but uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that, they, that, that the police officer did the right thing. On leaving college, he returned to the humble home of his kind foster mother, where he continued to live and pursue his favorite studies for nearly 40 years, sharing with her household his small revenue. Well, that's nice. Although the good woman loved him as a son, so little did she encourage his exclusive devotion to science that when he spoke of his discoveries or writings, she replied with a short sort of pity. You will never be anything but a philosopher. And what is a philosopher but a fool who torments himself during his life that people may talk about him when he is dead? I've actually heard something similar said, said about me with writing, so um, I feel bad for him uh, for that. But at least she loved him, but... Yeah, yeah, let's be careful what we say to people. At first, his friends urged him to qualify himself for some profitable career, but after trying for a time the study of law and then of medicine, he gave up the attempt as hopeless and abandoned himself without reserve to his passion for science. In 1741, at the age of 23, he was admitted a member of the Academy of Sciences. See? Pretty cool. Having already attracted attention by several physico-mathematical traits, Tracks. Two years later appeared his treatise in dynamics, founded on a new and fertile principle which makes an epic in mechanical philosophy. Quote, this principle consists, says Condorcet, in establishing the equality at every instant between the changes which the motion of the body has undergone and the forces which have been employed to produce them. End quote. In other words, it reduces all the laws of motion to the consideration of equilibrium. That's where we get equilibrium as him. Among the more important of his other scientific works are his theory of the winds, which gained the prize of the Academy of Berlin, 1746. It contains the first conception and use of the calculus of partial differences, a treatise on the precession, precession of the equinoxes, 1749, giving for the first time an analytical solution of that phenomenon, as well as the nuation of the Earth's axis. Essay on the Resistance of Fluids in 1752, Researches on Some Important Points in the System of the Universe, 1754, and in 1756, his mathematical obscules contain an immense number of memoirs, some on new subjects, 
some containing developments of his previous works, but he did not confine himself to physical science. Diderot, having conceived the idea of the famous encyclopedia, enlisted the services of Allenbert, who wrote the preliminary discourse, so Diderot actually had him help, which is allowed by all to be a noble tribute to literature and philosophy, a model of lucid and eloquent exposition combining an immense extent of knowledge with rare judgment. Besides numerous articles in the encyclopedia, he published Elements of Philosophy in 1759, Melanges of Literature and Philosophy, The Destruction of the Jesuits, etc. He also wrote a great many elegies of members of the Academy of Sciences, of which he was elected secretary in 1772. His literary works have been published in a collected form, new edition by Bassange, Paris, 1821, five vol volumes, this is 8VO. This edition contains the correspondence of him with Voltaire, oh wow, the, and, and the King of Prussia. So he corresponded with both Voltaire and the King of Prussia. His scientific works have never been collected. I wonder if they have by this time. Surely they have. Allenbert gave striking proof of how little he regarded riches and distinctions or the flatteries of the great and how genuine was his independence. Frederick II of Prussia offered him the presidency of the Academy of Berlin in 1752, but he declined to leave France and only accepted a subsequent offer of a pension of 1,200 francs. The King of France granted him a similar sum. In 1762, Catherine II of Russia invited him through her, her ambassador to undertake the education of her son with a salary of 100,000 francs. And when he declined, she wrote him a letter with her own hand urging that to refuse to contribute to the education of a whole nation was inconsistent with his own principles and inviting him if he could not reconcile himself to breaking off of his pursuits and friendships to bring all his friends with him and to provide both for them and for him everything they could desire. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine being so sought out that even a queen handwrites you a letter and then offers to put up you and all of your friends? Let's see what he did. Let's see what his reaction is. But Allenbert remained steadfast. When the Grand Duke afterwards visited Paris, he good-humoredly reproached Allenbert with his refusal, and to the excuse of the rigor of the climate and feeble health, the prince replied with the compliment, quote, In truth, monsieur, it is the only false calculation you have made in your life, end quote. Allenbert was never married. He was tenderly attached for many years to a Mademoiselle Espinese, although their intimacy, it is believed, never went beyond a warm friendship. The death of the lady was a severe blow to Allenbert. His own health began to give way, for he was suffering from the stone and would not consent to an operation. He died in 1783, October 29th. Allenbert was truthful, frank, and benevolent. He held it as a principle of morals that a man has no right to dispose at will of his own superfluous means while there are others in want of the necessaries of life. A stigma has attached to the name of Allenbert from his intimate association with Voltaire and other assailants of Christianity. But Allenbert, in his published writings, never denied the Christian revelation from his private correspondence, it is gathered that his opinions favored a simple theism. 
that is really cool. Um, man, really neat person. All right, our 25th entry is Alembec. Alembec, noun. A gourd-like vessel with a lid for distilling a chemist's retort now obsolete. It is. It was a form of steel introduced into chemistry by the alchemists and used by ancient experimenters in manipulative chemistry for the distillation and sublimation of substances such as alcohol or formic acid obtained by heating a decoction of red ants in water. Oh my. The vessel consisted of a body, kirkabit, or matross, in which the material to be volatilized was placed. A head or capital into which the vapors rose were cooled and then trickled down to the lower part whence by pipe the distilled product passed into the receiver. Where very volatile liquids were being distilled, it was customary to introduce the receiver into a vessel with cold water so as to increase the perfectness of the condensing part of the arrangement. The Allenbeck has now been entirely superseded by the retort and receiver or by the flask attached to a Lieberg's uh, I'm sorry, Liebig's condenser, C retort. And there is a little drawing of it. It looks like something you would see in the, the old black and white movies um, in a mad scientist lab. Um, that's the only way I can describe it. Right, and with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our last five entries are Alink, Tezo, Alonson, Alinth, Alenio, comma, Julio, and then Aleppo. Okay. And for all but one of these entries, we will be in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. It's the 29th entry that we will be in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Okay. Our 26th entry is... Lentezo, and that is a province in the south of Portugal, 9,388 square miles. It is partly washed by the Atlantic on the west and stretches to the Spanish frontier on the east. It is traversed by a number of mountain chains and is watered by the Tagus, Guadani, Gudana, and Sado or Sado. In the south and west, the climate is hot and dry. The plains are covered with brown heath unrelieved by a tree or a shrub and only broken at intervals by marshy wastes, while the vegetation is extremely scanty. In the east, the valleys are fertile and the mountains adorned with forests. The productions are singularly abundant. They consist of wheat, barley, rice, maize, the vine, and a variety of choice fruits such as citron, the lemon, the fig, the pomegranate. In the valleys, the principal trees are the oak with edible fruits, the evergreen oak, the cork oak, the chestnut, and the pine. In the plains, lavender, rosemary, juniper, myrtle. The pasturage is extraordinarily fine. Great attention is given to the rearing of swine, goats, and sheep, and in a less degree of horned cattle, asses, and mules. As the population is sparse, more grain is produced than is consumed, but manufacturers are backward. Even mining, which might be very profitable, is neglected. Chief towns are Evero, Elvis, Port uh, Alegre, Beja, Estremoz, and Mortola. The population in 1900 was 413,531. 
All right. And I have to say about the mining, they, they may mine now in 2021, but I've driven through uh, mining places, areas, and... Uh, in uh, the Appalachian areas and the mountains are crying and the people are not in the best of health. So, yeah, my, my um, I, I understand we need mining, we need miners, we need all of that, but, but uh, it's been uh, <laughs> colored or discolored by what I've witnessed. Okay, uh, and I'm, that's all I'm going to say about that. You can agree or disagree, that's fine. Uh, that's absolutely fine. I'm I'm just saying that my ideas of it are colored uh, or discolored because of that. All right. Allenson is our 27th entry, and that is a chief town of the Department of Warren, France, on the Sarth, latitude 48 degrees, 25 feet north, and longitude 0 degrees, 5.5 feet east. The town church, a structure of the 16th century in the Gothic style, contains the remains of the tombs of the Allenson family, which were almost completely destroyed at the Revolution. It has a fine porch and exquisitely painted windows. Allison is a clean and handsome town with good streets and a delightful public walk. The inhabitants produce excellent woolen and linen stuffs, embroidered fabrics, straw hats, lace work, artificial flowers, hosiery, etc. The manufacturers of... Allenson, Point Lace, although still important, is not as extensive as formerly. I'm, I'm pretty sure it says Point Lace. It's a little faded there. The cutting of the so-called Allenson diamonds, or quartz crystals, found in the vicinity of the town has also greatly declined. Population in 1893 was 16,367. The old Dukes of Allenson were a branch of the royal family of Valois and were descended from Charles of Valois, who perished at the Battle of Crecy in 1346. His grandson, John I, fell at Agincourt in 1415. His successor, John II, allying himself with the enemies of the court, was twice condemned to death but pardoned. René, son of John II, also excited, not without cause, the suspicion of the French monarch, Louis XI, who confined him for three months in an iron cage at Chinon. But as the Parliament had never condemned him, he was released at the death of Louis and restored by Charles VIII to his title and estate. René's son, who had married the sister of Francis I, was general of the ad advance guard of the French army in the Netherlands. He commanded the left wing at the Battle of Pavia, where instead of supporting the king at a critical moment, he fled with his troops and to him, therefore, has been attributed both the disastrous defeat sustained by the French and his sovereigns falling into the hands of the enemy. With him expired the old house of Allenson. The duchy was then given to the Duke of Anjoy. Louis XIV conferred it upon the Duke of Berry and Louis XVI on the Count of Provence. So there we go. Right. And number 28 is a length, a length, and that just means stretched to the full extent. So pretty self-explanatory there. Sometimes they're not, but that one is. Right. And for entry number 21, I mean, I'm sorry, 29, not 21. Oh, goodness. For entry number 29, we can go to the Encyclopedia Americana. And that is Alanio, Julio, or Julio Alanio. 
and he was an Italian Jesuit missionary born Brescia Lombardi in 1582, died for now following China, August 3, 1649. Reaching Macau in 1610, he penetrated into China in 1613 and worked as a missionary in Kongsai and Fukien. His many works in Chinese include A Life of Christ, published in Peking, Peking now Peeping, in 1635 to 1637, and subsequently often reprinted. In The True Origin of 10,000 Things, he cosmography, a cosmography published at Hankow in 1623, he represented arguments against many points of Chinese belief. Okay, and that's all they have to say about him, but he sounds like an important figure um, that if you want to know more about, I'll be willing to do a bonus on him. Just go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact and let me know if you want me to pick him as the bonus. Again, he's entry number 29 or write to me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com or you can ask me to do any bonus. It's okay. Uh, and speaking of bonuses, uh, don't forget our Christmas bonus uh, that will drop Christmas Eve at 7 a.m. I'm super excited about it. Uh, again, Whenever, I, after I did the Halloween one, I wasn't planning on doing a Thanksgiving and Christmas one, but then I woke up Thanksgiving morning and I was like, I have to do a bonus. And so I'm really excited about this one too. Uh, so yeah, look, look for that Christmas Eve. So December 24th, 7 a.m. And that's Eastern time. So 7 a.m. Eastern time. Okay, our last entry, entry number 30, is Aleppo or Aleppo, and that is a town in the north of Syria, capital of Turkish Vilayet of the same name, between the Orontes and the Euphrates, on the banks of the little desert stream, Nar el Halab. It stands in a large hollow, surrounded by rocky hills of limestone. The fruitful gardens, celebrated for their excellent plantations of pistachios, are the sole contrast to the desolation and minarets clean. So, okay, who's numberless? Okay, hold on. Okay, I see what I did. Let me back up. The fruitful gardens celebrated for their excellent plantations of pistachios are the sole contrast to the desolation which environs the city, which numberless cupolas and minarets clean. Well paved, okay, so it looks like a period, but it actually goes on. Well paved streets and stately houses make it even yet one of the most beautiful in the east. It is a telegraphic station in connection with Damascus and with Diabarki, I'm sorry, Dia Becker on the Indo European line. Formerly, it supplied a great part of the east with fabrics of silk, cotton, and wool, and gold and silver stuffs. But in 1822, an earthquake swallowed up two-thirds of the inhabitants, oh goodness, that's horrible, and transformed the citadel into a heap of ruins. The plague of 1827, the cholera of 1832, and the oppression of the Egyptian government nearly completed its destruction. Under the Egyptian power, however, a new citadel and some other edifices were erected, but scarcely half of the mosques and baths have been rebuilt. The aqueduct is the oldest monument of the town. Aleppo is one of the principal imperiums of the inland commerce of Asia. Its port is Alexandretta or Iskanderun. It has a large trade in cotton and silk goods, skins, tobacco, wine, and oil, and manufactures cloth, which is much admired. 
silk, cotton, wool, flowered and striped, carpets, cloaks, and soap. Once the center of Saracenic power, it still remain, retains much of the Arabic character, and its citizens are famed for their manners. Population, 127,150. Okay, and that is our last entry for this week, so I appreciate you sticking with me and for listening, and thank you again for those who are from France and Australia who are listening, as well as to my listeners in the U.S., and thank you to uh, to Patty for listening, uh, both Patties and Emily and uh, Courtney and Charlie, and uh, I, I knew I needed to write the names down, <laughs> but thank you all uh, for listening, and thank you for Janice for listening as well, and I uh, want to uh, those are just some people who've, you know, indicated that they listen. They've re- reached out to me. So if you want me to give you a shout out, you know, write to me. Go to Mandy, uh, write uh, to Mandy Oaks at protonmail.com and uh, I'll give you a shout out in one of the uh, podcasts. So thank you all so much um, for listening. Uh, before we close, though, before I go, I do want to remind you of the quote of the month by Carlisle. Wondrous is the strength of cheerfulness and its power of endurance. The cheerful man will do more in the same time, will do it better, will persevere in it longer than the sad or sullen. So with a cheerful heart, I hope you get to celebrate Christmas uh, or whatever holiday you celebrate right now. But it's Christmas time for, for me. And I appreciate you again for listening. And don't forget the Christmas Eve bonus, or the Christmas bonus will drop Christmas Eve, 7 a.m. Eastern Time, where I'll read a book and I'll explain which two books I was going back and forth about. I don't want to reveal it right now, uh, just in case the second book doesn't get here in time. But but thank you so much uh, for listening. I hope you have a blessed week, and I bid you adieu.